Uh, Look at your insert as well if you'd like. This is Acts chapter 10 that we have arrived at. If you're newer to our church, um, we are committed to a style of preaching that's called expository. And that simply means we take the scripture as it comes in sections. Um, We're going through the book of Acts right now. And so that in its wide meaning, expository means to take the books of the Bible and walk through them together as a congregation. The more narrow meaning for expository means Therefore, the message of the text is the message of the sermon. Um, there are other biblical ways to approach uh, sermonizing. You can do topical sermons that are biblically based and, and other kinds. But as a staple, we're committed to that. So that's why we're walking through the book of Acts together in this fashion. And we've come to uh, a story where Peter, the apostle, um, is meeting Cornelius. And this is significant because it's the beginning of the gateway being open to the Gentiles. It was always God's plan to be a blessing to the nations through the Jews who would bring the Messiah. To this point in the book of Acts, it has been mostly a Jewish focus. People who are being converted to Christ are those who were previously Jewish. Even the Samaritans were half Jewish, and they had come to Christ. Now it was time for the way to the Gentiles to be open. And it's it's a pronounced way. A, A centurion in the Roman army in Caesarea, a pretty prominent person um, now has become interested in the Jewish faith, watching what they're doing, seeing who the true God is, not knowing Christ yet, but certainly very respectful of the God they preached. And so now that Christianity, uh, realized Judaism, you might say, as the Messiah has come, the apostolic faith it's now called, because the apostles, the prophets of the New Testament, make all the connections about Christ to the Old Testament prophets, And now we have the apostolic Christian faith. These are all technical terms, but they're important to be familiar with. And now it's introduced through Cornelius that the Gentiles, most of us are probably Gentiles, that's how we receive the gospel so openly and freely, starting with this man, uh, this man Cornelius. Let's go to the text now and pick up in the story. You remember that Cornelius has sent for Peter to come and talk to him. Peter doesn't know what he's going there for exactly. Um, it could be another trial. It could be another case where he is, he is beaten up. Uh, it could be another case where he stands before the authorities. He doesn't know exactly why he's going. He received a vision, though, that was clear that he should not look down upon the Gentiles any longer. He should rather see how they should be also uh, related with and shared with insofar as the message the apostles were given. But he doesn't know much more. Now we come to the passage. Follow as I read. This is God's holy word, Acts 10, starting at verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. That's Peter and those accompanying him. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. 
He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, Open up the meaning of your word to us this hour. As we study this passage, please give us understanding of what is true and what to do. Compel us to be lovers of your gospel who desire Christ's name to be broadcasted in every way possible. Lord, we desire to know you more personally, and we want others to come to know Christ as well. The one thing that is clear in this passage and the whole of your word, spiritual life depends on the application of Christ's finished work by your Holy Spirit. Please send your Spirit and grant life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and give refreshment and passion to those who already know you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This passage bears witness to the expansion of God's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel to the nations. This is where the kingdom of God begins to shake off its distinctly Jewish garments in favor of a new wider identity. It transcends borders, it transcends nations, it transcends ethnicities. Uh, The Jewish faith, you might say, fully fulfilled by the Messiah, becomes the apostolic faith. And the apostolic faith is an evangelistic faith. It's a proclamation of good news. It bears witness to the Christ. The apostolic faith makes Christ known to all mankind. The apostolic faith gives a more full description of God's people, no longer limited to a a nation that you had to come through to be a believer. Now it expands far beyond. You see, it's not that you could not be right with God as a Gentile, but you had to come through Judaism. You had to follow their rites and rituals before the time of Christ. 
Now that was done away with as Christ comes and is proclaimed to all. The church is the kingdom of God on earth. And this is what the apostolic faith proclaims. Here's the fundamental bottom line of this passage. The apostolic faith is absolutely an evangelistic faith. And the church bears witness to Christ as her top priority. Now we might rightly say, but isn't worship our top priority? Absolutely. Who are we worshiping? Christ. We worship God through Christ, the triune God. We are here because of Christ. We are a Christian church. We are here to bear witness to Jesus. Let's walk through this passage and see how it unfolds. This is a monumental passage. It's a gateway opening for sure. In the passage, we'll see, first of all, how this evangelistic appointment, a time to proclaim the message of Christ, that is a a divine endeavor. It's a supernatural appointment that God works. That's always how he does it. Even from you telling your friend to a big gathering hearing the gospel or any other order of things happening, it's a supernatural endeavor when evangelism happens. The second thing we'll see, what is evangelism? What exactly is it? A lot of people have definitions for it. This passage depicts for us in simplest terms, it's the declaration of Christ. That's what evangelism means. And then finally, we'll notice in the last few verses, any results that come from evangelism are the Holy Spirit's doing. It's a supernatural endeavor at the beginning. It's a declaration of Christ, and the Holy Spirit must make it effective in our lives. If you believe in Jesus today, if you rest in his finished work, that's not because you were so smart that you figured out it made sense. It does make sense. It's a rational gospel. But you in your human dependence and sin could not see it unless the Holy Spirit gave you sight. So all of us are here believing, if we're believing, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll see this unfold in the passage before us. Let's look first, starting at verse 24, how this is a supernatural endeavor. It's an appointment that God makes between Peter and Cornelius. Not only just those two, all of Cornelius's friends and family, it seems like, at least a lot of them. And also, there are six people that travel with Peter from Joppa, six Jews who travel with him. We learned this in chapter 11, how many there were accompanying him. So there's seven Jewish people here, which is the legal number of witnesses you have to have, which is interesting. But these seven Jews come with the three messengers, Cornelius, his friends, and his family, all appointed by God. Verse 24, on the following day, they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. I love this, the eagerness of Cornelius. Remember, a couple days have gone by since he had his vision. He has his vision, he sends his messengers. It takes a day to go get Peter. Then it takes another day to come back, at least. But what does Cornelius do in the meantime? He can't wait. So he tells his friends, he tells his, close, he tells his family and his closest friends, you've got to come, this Peter's coming. Peter's going to talk to us. God told me through an angel that he's going to come. How long are they sitting there? I mean, you wonder, he doesn't know. They don't have a cell phone to say, hey, we're almost there. There's nothing like that there. Uh, He's just ready for them. He is eager and waiting. I mean, this is the ultimate preacher's audience going on right here. Verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Now, this is not the part that the preacher should want. In fact, Peter lifted him up and said, stand up, I too am a man. It's noteworthy and I think also instructional that Peter does not accept the praise and worship of man. And no pastor or leader of the church should. None of us should receive praise in this sense from other people. And Cornelius doesn't know this. He's a man of rank. And he uh, is used to bowing down to those who are superior. And he's so thankful that God is sending Peter, he just falls down. 
But Peter wants to make clear that only God should get this kind of adoration. I am just a man like you. It's sort of like Nicholas von Zinzendorf said, as far as our demeanor, even as, especially as ministers, as church leaders, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's what we should do. And Peter takes this mindset here, at least at this moment, stand up, I too am a man. Now, it's all starting to come at Peter quick. Verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. I don't know what's going on in Peter's mind. Remember, we kind of know the story a little bit, what he's going to preach. He still doesn't know what the actual purpose is for this meeting. He's not been given that heads up. So he sees all these people. He's got a Roman centurion, a well, well-respected, higher up in at least that local legion of troops. He has his family there. He has friends there. The house is packed. Verse 28, and he said to them, Peter's address, walking into a Gentile's home, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Now, that word unlawful in the Greek text is not the namos legal word, meaning it's actually in God's word illegal, but rather the word really means taboo. You know how taboo it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any other na- You know how in trouble I could be if people found out what I'm doing here. I, and they all know this. So he's just calling their attention to how unusual this meeting is. And he goes on. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's revolutionary what he's saying to them. He's declaring it does not matter who you are, what nation you're part of. God's told me that does not matter. So when I was sent for, verse 29... I came without objection. I ask you then, why you sent for me? Why am I here? What do you want from me? Peter's saying. Cornelius steps up. Now remember, Cornelius was scared. He was terrified when he had this meeting with the angels. Now he leaves that part out when he retells the story. I can understand. But the story is vivid indeed. And you see the passion in Cornelius to know what it is that God has to say to him and them through Peter. Verse 30, Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. It said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. He had a respect for God through what he saw in the Jews. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodged in the house, lodging in the house of Simon the Tanner, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. So he's just telling his side of the story. Peter, you know, met these messengers, probably got that story told to him. Now it's retold. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. You get to see Cornelius sitting at the edge of his seat, everybody waiting. Okay, we've been waiting, maybe hours. What do you got to say? What are you going to tell us? I love this picture of eagerness. F.F. Bruce said this, and several other commentators said something like it. Did ever a preacher of the gospel have a more promising audience than this? What a picture. You know what, though? Let's, let's be challenged about the Lord's Day and about coming to hear the Word of God preached. If a Roman centurion without a very deep background in biblical teaching would go to the lengths that he went to prepare for the preaching of the Word, Should we not also, as God's people, be this prepared each Lord's Day? Should we not come looking for a word from God? 
Should we not come with this kind of eagerness? Should we not be careful about how we prepare the night before for the day that's coming? You know, the same way we would make sure we were ready for work the next day, would we not be ready to hear the word from Almighty God the next day? Here's Cornelius, a great example to us, who is not yet, as we can tell, born again. The Spirit's working. Clearly, he's in the process of God transferring him from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But I challenge all of us to come prepared to receive what God has prepared for us by his, from his word. That's why we are committed to expository preaching, by the way. Don't come prepared to hear what my cleverness is. Come prepared to count on the pastor, the elders, whoever's bringing the word, to bring the word. This is what the word says. This is what we should do. We should be eager for this message because you don't, won't get it just anywhere. We're open to all sorts of messages, but of what about this one? And here's Cornelius at the edge of his seat with the ones he loves, who he wants to have hear this too. It's so important he wants everybody he knows to hear, and he doesn't care what they think of him or what might happen if it goes back up the chain of command to the polytheistic Roman pantheon worshiping superiors he has. Doesn't care. Family, friends, you got to hear this. Peter, the apostle, he's coming. You know, something else we see is just the work of God's providence here in evangelism. God's providence is always at work. Here especially, though, we see him orchestrating events so that Christ can be proclaimed. Um, evangelism and the proclamation of Christ, it's supernaturally appointed, and it's, in, it's appointed and empowered by God. I like what our confession says about God's providence, and you can apply it here to this instance. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. You see all the pieces together? All the individuals he was working to prepare for this moment, for this meeting? God in his ordinary providence, our confession says, makes use of means. One of the means is the preaching and the reading of God's word. God directs these kinds of instances of gospel proclamation to achieve his glorious redemptive ends. That's what's unfolding. Something else I want us to notice, though, before we go to the, se- the middle section of the text. We also have to be ready to give an account. You never know when you might be called. Some of you have had this experience where coworkers or family members, they'll know you got religious a little bit. It just happened to me uh, a week ago. I've been playing hockey with some guys who are not believers, and we're all sitting around after playing in a restaurant, and um, they don't know me as a pastor. There's very few audiences that, uh, some of them do now a little bit. They don't know what it means, though. In fact, there was trivia night at this particular establishment we were at, and as we were there, the trivia night, they go, this is great, we can do this. We got Tony, he's got all that, he knows stuff about God. So he can answer those questions, and then someone else can answer them about classic rock era. And the other one about, they were pretty excited I was part of their group for that reason. Uh, but you never know at what instance. You could be sitting there talking about your family one moment or something you do for work, and the next moment someone who knows you might be a believer might ask you a question. And just be prepared. The level of preparedness is relative to where you are in your walk. Don't feel guilty if you're a new believer or you're still growing. God will give you what you need to say, but know what is the essence of the passage here, the gospel, and we'll come to that in more full, fullness soon. But be ready, and you know, Peter writes later in his life in a letter, words you're probably familiar with. Peter says this, have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter writes this later in his life after he's had some time to have some of these instances and occasions. 
evangelism, certainly a supernatural endeavor. But what exactly is it? Now we come to the body or the heart of this, pers- this particular passage. Very simply and profoundly, we see that evangelism is simply this, Christ proclaimed. Nothing added to that, Christ proclaimed. Let's look at Luke's summary of Peter's message. Most scholars agree, you know, Peter said more than just these few sentences. He, this is just narrowing down his apostolic message. It's the core of the message of the apostles. Here now, Luke summarizes. Verse 33, Cornelius says, we're all here. We're here to hear what God has commanded you. Peter opened his mouth. I love the beginning of that. That's a bit of a marker for us in the book of Acts. It's only, it happened once before. It's maybe not a repetitive marker, but it rings a bell. You remember when Philip was talking to the Ethiopian eunuch? The eunuch said to Philip, because he was reading the book of Isaiah, I ask you, who does the prophet say this about? And he's reading about the suffering servant, Jesus, in Isaiah 53. The eunuch says to Philip, is the prophet talking about himself, Isaiah, or is he talking about somebody else? Then Philip opened his mouth, the text says. Now he's about ready to, to deliver the gospel. And beginning with this scripture, Isaiah, in that case, he told him the good news about Jesus. He told him the good news about Jesus, evangelism. Telling the good news about Jesus in simplest form. So Peter opened his mouth, back to our text, verse 34. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Now let's pause here to be absolutely sure what he's saying. He's opening up, this is his introduction. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Remember, he's a Jew, they're Gentiles. He wants them to know that he understands, according to God now, there is no, he's not partial towards nations. That's the, that's the context. We should read more into it. Verse 35. But in every nation, anyone who fears him... Who's him? The true God. And does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, if we want to dissect that, the only people that could know the true God and do what's right and acceptable would have to have the revelation of the scripture. So let's not read more into it. He's simply saying, God is no respecter of what, of what nation you're in. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whatsoever. God is indifferent about what nation you're in. He's not indifferent about what you believe. He's about to tell you what you should believe. So he's simply introducing by saying, I, Jew, am talking to you about the gospel, and God is no respecter of persons in this respect. He shows no partiality. That's the preface. Now we see evangelism. Verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. We'll go back and walk through this, but pay attention closely as I continue. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Talking about the apostolic faith, the apostolic witness, like the prophets of the Old Testament, carefully guarded, carefully given to be stewards of this message, supernaturally given this message. Now, before we go to the next two verses, which, by the way, will be our memory verses for this year, notice how Christ is proclaimed here as a bit of a teaching moment for us about what evangelism looks like. So as you're growing in Christ, to at least know these tenets would be very important. You could simply say to a person who's wondering how they could be right with God, do you believe you're a sinner? 
trust in Jesus as your Savior who died on the cross for your sins. Believe on him and you'll be saved. That's, that's, that works. I mean, that's the gospel in, in, a, form, in a formal uh, or a summarized way. But as you grow, be able to say more about what this all means. And that's what we have in the text. Notice verse 36. The gospel is peace with God through Christ. That's the first thing. Why do we need peace? Because we're sinners. We're at war with God. So as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus. It's not peace on earth like nobody have a war anymore. That can't begin to be realized until everybody stops being at war with God personally. Um, Jesus is far more concerned with that peace. No other peace could happen until that occurs. So that's the first step. There's a war. We're sinners. Oh, that's the unrest I feel against God. I get it. Second point, Jesus is the anointed Messiah. Verse 37 and verse 38 say this. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. It was pretty public knowledge, especially according Cornelius was hanging around with the Jews, so he knew this. Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. The word anointed, anointing Jesus, God anointing, anointed one, that's what Messiah means. So he's saying Jesus is the Messiah. You're at war with God, Jesus came to give peace. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth to be with the Holy Spirit. More messianic language from the, the book of Isaiah. Anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing. Again, messianic language from the Old Testament prophets. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he's declaring by this. So our gospel message, evangelism, we're sinners at war with God. We need the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. What did Jesus do as the Messiah? Verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on the tree. The Messiah had to die for our sins. This is the gospel proclaimed. The fourth point you might note in the sermon that Peter's giving, he was resurrected. It's how we know that God accepted his sacrifice. But God raised him, verse 40, raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. This is an appeal to their apostolic authority here. Now, they're going to give a message for the church to continue to propagate, but there's an important apostolic authority feature built in here for everyone to recognize as Peter speaks. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That's what it takes to be an apostle, is this personal eyewitness interaction. So the gospel is proclaimed here. In very simple terms, evangelism occurs. Now, verse 42 and verse 43 give us a summary of it all. And these are the two verses I'm asking you to commit to your memory. It'll be on your home fellowship group um, notes going forward, like we've done in the past. I had to delay till this week, because the first two weeks I was at Lee Summit. Then the passage wasn't quite there yet last week. I hope no one noticed. A couple of you did. And now here we are for your memory passage. In these verses, 42 and 43, hear me read them, and then we'll say them together as they are highlighted or they're darkened or emboldened. Um, the passage says, and he commanded us, and he's talking as an apostle now. So verse 42 is about the apostle's command, but verse 43 is for all of us. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Christ, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Verse 43. 
To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's the essence of the gospel repeated for us. Everyone who believes in him, Christ, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now I want to emphasize, that's the gospel. Now a lot of times, well-meaning believers will tack on various things we should do because we're Christians, and they mix it in, and it sounds like the gospel is, you know, you should... uh, feed the poor, or should reach out, or relieve the oppressed, or do this, or do that. And do Those may be gospel implications in the context of where the church finds itself. In many cases, it is. Gospel implications. But the gospel is, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the gospel. That's what we're stewards of. That's what we proclaim with, with clarity, with simplicity. That's too simple. No, that's exactly what it is. And usually what we mean when we say it's too simple, is that we're trying to add something to it because we don't like the way the church is behaving. I get that. That's conviction we might rightly have. But that does not take place of the gospel. The gospel is still this. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, you have it in front of you, verse 42 and verse 43, in the middle of the text printed. Let's read it together, all in one voice. Ready? Verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amen. Now, evangelism is declaring then that Christ is the Savior of sinners and that we must believe on him. That's what we have Before us, all the prophets said it, and now Christ has fulfilled it. And the apostles, in the apostolic faith, give us this clarity of message that we, the church, are to bring forward. Now, let's go to the last section of the text, starting at verse 44. We see that the results of this evangelistic exercise are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Many times, again, well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ will say evangelism is getting altar calls or results or responses from people. That's when you've done evangelism, when you have a way for people to respond to the message given. Maybe you've grown up in churches where they ended every service with with an altar call. I'm not dissing that. I'm just saying that's not evangelism. Evangelism is a proclamation of the message. Now, interpersonally, and there may be other ways which we challenge, do you really believe in the gospel? Do you really know? Absolutely. But evangelism is expressing what the gospel is. God is the one who promotes or produces any results. We look for those results, but we cannot produce them. We proclaim the message, and then what happens is something like what happens here. I say something because there's lots of uniqueness in the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit's starting to come in a way that the Holy Spirit's been settled on indwelling and working now since then. But there's still much for us to gather. While Peter, verse 44, was still saying these things, he's preaching this message, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. That's Cornelius, his friends, and his family. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews who were there with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. Now I want you to see what this is referring to. Remember, the idea in the mind of the Jews is that, yes, people could come to God, but they had to come through Judaism, and the rite of circumcision in particular was the sign of the covenant. So if you said you wanted to know God, that's fine, you've got to become Jewish. Now, in this era, it was a bit confusing for some of the Jews because now all of a sudden, the Gentiles are coming in. Do they need to be circumcised first to become Jews and then believe on Christ? 
There was a real challenge in the book of Galatians, the first book Paul wrote, that's the first issue he deals with. No, you don't have to be circumcised any longer. Baptism replaces circumcision. That starts to make more sense as the, Old, as the New Testament unfolds, but giving them the benefit of the doubt, it was difficult at first to see this. But this story is meant to teach us that at some level. The words preached, they're Gentiles who've never been circumcised, yet the Holy Spirit comes upon them and dwells them. They're believers now. Why would they go back and be circumcised? It doesn't make any sense. They're to be given the new sign, which is baptism. After they've come to faith as first-generation believers now, they receive the sign. And the, the Jews there are amazed. They're like, wow, this, this, we've seen this before. We've seen the, the Holy Spirit come, and we know that it means they're regenerated, that they're believers. Verse 44, while he was still saying these things, the Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now go to verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. They knew it was genuine. The sign was to show them it was genuine. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? See what Peter's doing? He's already there, but he's, the people who are with him may not yet understand how this transference has happened. So he's saying, you're watching them. They've become born again. Is there any reason why I shouldn't just go to baptism right now? We should. We don't need to circumcise them. That's really what he's saying. We don't need to have that be part of it. Any reason we shouldn't just baptize these believers? Of course, there's no objection recorded. And so he moves to command them. Them, it's not Peter, has, Peter didn't have to do it. But he commands them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Lots of questions, I'm sure. But it was simple enough to realize they knew they were sinners. They knew that Christ was the Messiah. They knew that he died on the cross for their sins. They believed in that, and they, as first-generation believers, were baptized. And notice Cornelius' household is there, and they were baptized too. The transference from the covenant sign of circumcision now takes its form in baptism, and we see the Spirit's work bringing the results. We look at this last section, a few, a few points to be made. Because it transfers beyond just the first time you hear the word of God or the gospel and believe. It's true for us as believers, you know. We're just as dependent on the Holy Spirit for understanding, applying the word as we were when we first came to faith. We can't in our minds, even our regenerate minds, on their own, without help in the Holy Spirit, understand what the message of Scripture is. We have to have the Holy Spirit's illuminating ministry in our lives. That's true always. In fact, I think J.I. Packer puts this in the best terms I've read, at least in the shortest terms, to describe this dynamic work of the Holy Spirit in all of us as we open the Word. The work of the Spirit, Packer says, in imparting this knowledge is called illumination or enlightening. It's not a giving of new revelation, but a work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is there before us in the biblical text, as heard and read, and as explained by teachers and writers. Sin in our mental and moral system clouds our minds and wills so that we miss and resist the force of Scripture. God seems to us remote to the point of unreality, and in the face of God's truth, we are dull and apathetic. The Spirit, however, Packer writes, opens and unveils our minds and attunes our hearts so that we understand. As by inspiration, he provided Scripture for us. Now by illumination, he interprets it to us. Illumination is thus the applying of God's revealed truth to our hearts 
so that we grasp as reality for ourselves what the sacred text sets forth. This is why we should be anxious to come into the house of God Sunday morning and wait for the word of God to be read and preached because we know the Holy Spirit's dynamically at work. The Holy Spirit's dynamically at work in your life as a believer when you're reading the word privately, true, too. But the predominant way that he works in the body of Christ is through the preaching of the word going forth. And you could count on the Holy Spirit to override all those deficiencies, and they are many of the preachers. Uh, But for the preacher, where he's safest is to stay on the word so that there's less chance for him to get in the way. That's the point, and I think the wisdom of expository preaching. The word was preached, the spirit filled, and the people believed. So brothers and sisters, in summary, the timeless significance of this meeting between Cornelius and Peter, and by the way, any women with child who are having a boy, Cornelius is a great name. I would just commend it to you. It can't be overstated how important this meeting is. It's nothing less than the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, and that's pretty big. Uh, The most important covenantal declaration in the Old Testament, most likely you could summarize to be the Abrahamic covenant, where where the, the fruit that will come from Israel will ultimately bless the nations. And here it's coming to reality. Cornelius, the representative of the nations, a gateway being opened. Peter's message and practice, a timeless model for evangelism. And the whole story teaches us what our priority is. The apostolic faith is an evangelistic faith. And the church bears witness to Christ as her top priority. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for your spirit. Please encourage us with a sense of your providential working in evangelism and in illumination. You have brought us to faith in Christ by your providence, and you are ordering our efforts to evangelize in the same way. Give us boldness. Give us clarity about the message. Help us not to become distracted. Give us opportunities to bear witness to Christ individually, as families, and as a church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.